Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Yes, I, I'm Alan. My company that I formed with four other guys a few years ago is Broadsight. We do technology consulting and that sort of stuff. And um, <coughs> some, quite a lot of our work is sort of back-end analytical stuff. We don't call ourselves data scientists. You know what a data scientist is, don't you? It's a statistician with a Mac. But um, <laughs> what funny yesterday. But um, we are, we're quite familiar with some of the back-end stuff of the social media side. And one of the things I've been looking at is what the implications are for open data. And like a fool, I said to Catherine last year, you know what, you guys are being a bit, bit, bit fly with all the bad stuff that can happen. She said, all right, come and talk here about it. So here I am. I've got a few friends who can carry my body out. Um, and let's launch into it. What I want to talk about really is, there's a, is, is what I call the original sin of the Internet. There's a, there's a bunch of um, concepts that the Internet is founded on which uh, effectively cause problems, and I'm going to go into that in a minute without sort of stealing my thunder first. Then I'm going to talk about data ownership. Uh, i.e. whose data are we really playing with here. Then I'm going to start to look at open data from the point of view of the bad guy. Once I put a black hat on, how do I look at this stuff? Um, talk a little bit about some of the things the bad guys will do to the open data, and they will do it, because history tells us they're going to do it. And then I'm going to look at something else which I think has not really come up to yet, is, is the politics of, of the whole open data area, and then think about some solutions. So that's it in a nutshell. Um, first, my disclaimer, like any new technology, history tells us it can be used for ill, it can be used for good. Uh, history also tells us that enthusiasts in the early days overpromise. History also tells us that the bad guys come in after them. So I have no reason to believe that that is not going to be the case with open data. We're going to see overpromising and then the bad guys come in after it. So my aim today is really to show you that the dark side is real and it is going to happen. Um, now, this is a Spanish-American philosopher. Can you see it? Those, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Uh, just to... Uh, Santayana also said, by the way, that for every uh, not knowledgeable phrase like this, there is an equal and opposite knowledgeable phrase, and this was his. History's a pack of lies. So um, a certain amount of uh, salt with what I'm going to say, but... I'm going to try and talk about originally the original sin of the internet, and this is from uh, a book on cybercrime and cyber warfare, and I thought it said very well, which is the original sin was the, uh, to assume that all the bad guys are going to be on the outside. And what, that has stayed, I think, with all the designs from the internet all the way through the web and all that. There's the assumption that it is only going to be used for good. And the problem with that, and I think it's going to happen with open data as well, I think there's a worrying assumption when I look around what people think about open data is that it's only going to be used by well-intentioned people to deliver helpful services. And going back to what I said earlier, this, this data is neutral. It can be used a lot of ways. And so if I take that statement there and replace it with open data from a, a book we're going to write in 2020 for Broadsight, what you may well find is the history uh, of the open data is the possibility that bad things could be done was simply not considered in the early days, and that from the beginning, uh, the world of open data, the internet, was based on imperfections, flaws, and poorly understood processes. And what do I mean by that? Uh, there was a study done two years ago at, uh, in the state of New York, Albany, on the risks with open data. They've got, they alliterated it, as one does, so they've got provenance. And what they're really saying there is that a lot of the data is taken from sources where contexts were different, where it wasn't aimed at what is now going to be used for. And that drives a whole lot of issues, uh, i.e. of understanding the data, understanding how it's used, understanding how it was taken, and so on and so forth. Very little of this data was ever <coughs> created with public usage in mind. 
The second issue is the practices, um, to actually understand how to manipulate the data. Are people skilled enough to understand what it's really saying? And I've done a lot of work with data over the years, and often it's more important to know how you got the data than what the data was. Third is proprietary. Um, proprietary. If you take data that is public data, i.e. the people have contributed and you use it for something else that they haven't given some form of permission for, you can lose trust very, very quickly. I'm going to go through a study of that just now. And the other one is, is just the processes. And effectively what they're saying is the process of opening and putting this data out there is going to lead to problems that can't be avoided. And really the rest of this talk is about those things. So here's a case study. This happened uh, last year. There was a plan to give anonymized patient medical records to private firms, by, and it was fronted by Jeremy Hunt. And this really is a case study of how not to do these things. Because what happened... Um, Everybody knows that sharing of data has got very large benefits, and there are business cases and puff pieces to the to heavens. What is very seldom considered, and I've, I've crawled Google to find this, is the amount of people say, well, actually, it's got large risks, is quite small. But people aren't stupid, it's their data in there, and they saw this straight away. So, effectively, what happened is goodwill was lost in this process very quickly, because effectively, what this was going over the heads of the data suppliers. The data supplier is not the government. The data supplier are the people who gave their data to the medical service to use for their own benefit. And there's a, there's a, there's a very clear distinction between the two. You know, that, that data is not the government's to give. It's mine and yours to give them permission to give. And that, missing that step caused a huge eruption. The second thing is that there was a lot of in, arguing that the ends justified the means. But the problem is the people who are going to benefit from the ends are not necessarily the people who are going to get disbenefits from any problems that occur. So the Yes, we will see great diseases, but when my data is out there and insurance companies want to nail me with higher um, rates or somebody wants to you know, let go that I had a fairly unpleasant past, I get the problem. So it's a sort of, it's my bad, somebody else is good. And that, that asymmetry was not considered. And that, that's a major issue as well. Um, so also, when people started to go and say, well, how did the commercial arrangements work? How are you going to charge these things? There was a lot of dissembling. It was, they didn't have it worked out. And of course, that immediately makes people nervous, and then they stopped trusting and all that works. And then they finally only gave into the sort of consultation and asking people whether they'll opt in, and even an opt-out was only given after all the campaigning groups had, had started up. And that, that's really a, a series of lessons on how not to do it. And what you go now, if you go through Twitter, the blogs, um, if you search Google, if you can go through Mumsnet, this is what you're going to see, that the people understand the benefits will be private and the losses are public. That's what they're worried about. They are very scared that the records will not be used responsibly by companies, for-profit companies. They're very worried that people won't be compensated for collateral damage, i.e. that the bad guys will get away with it. And a large number of people effectively are saying they're going to opt out. Now, it doesn't mean that all of them will, because a lot of people say something, they won't do it. But in effect, they're very cynical uh, about the whole thing. So, you know, this is not, and I think this is a case study of how not to do it, and really we need to do things differently. So that's really what I mean by the whose data is it anyway issue. The other one I think I want to get into is that the hacker's point of view. Again, history tells us wherever there's gold, it will be mined. And there is a lot of value in, in open data. Let's be, you know, let's not be to be on the bush here. That's a lot. A lot of the reason all these companies are setting up is not because of altruistic reasons. It's because there's value in this data. Um, and I think what is often ignored is a lot of this data can be triangulated. By that I mean if you take one set of data and another set of data, you can start to link things together and you can start to pull all sorts of connections that nobody believed were there. Um, 
And even if you can't get the triangulation the open data, you can buy all sorts of data as well to triangulate. I can buy uh, address registers, I can buy credit card details and so on. There's a lot of stuff out there in the black market that can be bought. Um, and then the third issue is open data has arrived about the same time as my access to really powerful computing has become dirt cheap. Um, you know, if I look at the sort of power of even my, my main computer at home now, you know, the sort of things I can get my hands on, it's more powerful than some supercomputers were 15, 20 years ago. You know, we're talking these, so we can run big models, we can run data over and over again, we can crunch patterns. The reason big data has occurred is not so much because the data has never been there, it's because it's now cheap to process it. The other thing, if I look at the hacker's point of view, is frankly, the smart guys are sitting on the hacker's side of the fence with this stuff. The number of people who can understand what the hackers will do to these data depositories who are sitting on their side of the fence is, is minuscule. And I think this is probably the biggest weakness at the moment, is, is people do not understand what can happen. They don't understand what they have to do to even stop it happening. And <clears throat> the last point I would say is, when I look at most of the worries about what could happen, it's all about taking the data and doing other things. Hacking is a read-write game. People can actually go into this data and change it for their own ends as well. So I'm not even certain that there's enough worry about where the safe and secure repositories are going to sit before the stuff is set out there. Because if I can start hacking and changing data that other people are then using, then I can cause all sorts of uh, interesting effects. So a little bit about um, history of um, the eternal triangulation. Uh, effectively, the view is that Anonymized data will be safe. It won't. There, there is no such thing as anonymized data. He has a, a case study from health records from 1997. Uh, one of the medical companies in Massachusetts sent it out, and one of the, a graduate student looked at this and said, all right, this is nice. They got hold of, um, they found out where the governor lived, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, got hold of the voting register for Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the problem is when you think you've got large numbers of data and you can start to split it out into little boxes like zip codes, then you start to get very small pieces of data, and then you can triangulate with that for something else. So she started to triangulate the zip code, triangulate with the birth date, and you start to get down to one person, or two, or three. And so she sent him his records within a few days of this supposedly anonymized data. And she then finished her work, and has now proved in the States anyway that for, you can ne get nearly 90% of all Americans... Um, almost uniquely by just knowing their zip code, their postcode, their birth date, and their sex, because so much of the data that's kept about them keys off one of those things. And it's no different in the UK. And in fact, things are getting worse because there is just more data out there now than there was in 90s. So there's more stuff I can buy, there's more stuff I can get off the internet, there's more stuff I can triangulate. Um, so if anything, it's, it's a worse problem now than it was, was then. And then I want to talk about uh, phishing, and you know, we all know what bad guys are going to do. But you know, we've seen it on the internet, we've seen it on the web. The, the history of the last 15 years will tell you what they're going to do. The, the difference is when they've got this sort of data, personal data from you, they're going to make much, much more attractive offers. They're going to know you so much better. You're not going to be able to tell nearly as easily that these offers are not from genuine people to you saying genuine things. They're going to know a lot more about you. And this is what uh, Jeff Jason, the chief science of one of the IBM sort of data analyst teams said. So they're going to basically go through your hobbies, your location, your lifestyle, all these things. So you're going to get things like a text to me saying, yeah, as you know, last week I had man flu. I was nearly dead, so it was really important. Um, and you're going to get something like this. You go, oh, my God, it's my surgery. It's man flu. What am I going to do? You click the source and bang, you're gone. You know, that's, they've, they've captured you. There's a virus. There's something in there. And you know, this is going to get worse. 
so that's, I think, one of the other issues we're going to find. It's just going to be more personal, harder to work out what's real spam and what isn't. And the other issue you've got is it's not just the bad guys who are going to do this. They, they, you, know, you, you know who the bad guys are. So this is, this is a sort of not bad guy model. Here's me walking into a cocktail party in 2020 with my 2020 vision. But here are my Google glasses of 2020, and I put them on. And I've got a little application here called Blackmailer. So I look, put on it, them on. It recognizes their faces, goes back, looks at all the data <coughs> I've put in all my various sources, and what do I get on my retinal display? A number of little pieces of data. How interesting. Those two people, their iPhones were at the same hotel at the same time last week. That's interesting. And that chap was charged for fraud. Hmm. That's interesting. She's almost pregnant. Why? Well, oh, but her husband's infertile. Oh, and, and, well, there's one. Who would have thought he was gay and men with the BMP? I bet they don't know. <laughs> hmm. Now, now, looking at you guys. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of you might be in, my, in for a little bit of blackmail as well. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, that's the problem, yes. <laughs> that, that's a very good, very good point. Um, but, you know, this is not far-fetched. With the exception of the health records and the uh, legal records that I referred to there, all the rest has happened already. Um, probably the, the, the most interesting one was this. Last year, these guys from Cambridge Psychometrics went through what they can scrape of your, ta- your um, Facebook feed. And we, we, we at Broadside, we, do, um, we, we can scrape Twitter. We know how to do that. And I, I pretty much view that if I can look at your past 300 tweets, I can sell you your soul. You have no idea what people tell you about themselves when, they, when you can string together their tweets over a period of time. It's not all data. You have to sort of apply a bit of human imagination to it, but, you know, humans can see what humans do. So this is not far-fetched at all. And I think this is, again, another issue we have to start thinking about. So I'll take my Google glasses off now because... And so even the good guys can cause problems. This was another one I looked at. There's a, a business case. This is about 2011 for opening up a national address data set. At the moment, this is something that is held by the Royal Mail and sold by them for profit. And there was a lot of uh, work on this one. I had a look at the business case. And uh, it's actually the thing's better made by one of the, one of the guys who wrote a comment on the blog post after this. His grammar's crap, but the analysis is spot on. The business case was just full of the optimistic case, but there was nothing, nothing about the bad, the downsides, costs. And I think that's, that's the problem with optimists, is they always see the good news. The business cases are always overblown. It's, that's, you know, that's not just data, that's not just internet, that's any uh, case. And um, so my view is that's the original sin writ, writ large. And in fact, what's happened is it wasn't sent out because the privatization of the Royal Mail meant they wanted to keep it in, uh, the Royal Mail. So it's, it's no, it is not yet going to be open. And I sort of never felt more glad that sort of Tory policies I don't like have actually saved that because I think that was very dangerous going back to what we've learnt about medical records in that other example and what you can do with just those three pieces of data I think that was a classic case of not understanding the impact of opening up data the last thing I want to talk about is the politics of data data does not exist in and of itself I think there's this dream that we're going to release all this data and it's all going to create clarity it doesn't um, the chap, I, I, I believe this, Alistair Kroll of O'Reilly said this uh, last year, the infographic will be the new stump speech. Everybody will use data for their purposes, to prove their point of view. And then questioning the data will be the new form of rebuttal, i.e. your data's crap, where did you get that from, how can I believe it? And I think that's what I would predict is going to start happening. And uh, the reason I say that is when Nate Silvers, the guy who predicted the last few US elections correctly, 
uh, looked at this. Now, he's written a fascinating book called The Signal and the Noise. If you're a data geek like I am, it's, it's, it's nirvana, but it's really good analysis of what goes wrong. And what he looked at the um, US government was so fed up with the bickering about climate data and climate change that they released a whole of this data in the late noughties, expecting clarity to emerge as everybody read the same data. And of course what happened is both sides grabbed the data, grabbed what they wanted, and the, he found that the um, partisanship actually got worse um, because each side found more ammunition. So I predict three political forces for data. The first is that um, the available data is seldom the whole story. Uh, and the data that people use will be even less of that. But it'll, it's a bit like the lamppost, you know, the old, when drunk guys look for keys, they look at under the lamppost because that's where the, light, the lights are. And the same will be here. The keys to the problem will not be under the lamppost, but the lamppost will be the data, and that will be crunched to prove the point. Some of this data is going to fuel some fairly politically contested issues. We, in all countries, we, we run with a series of myths. Data blows the myths, and there are often political schisms when it does that. I'll talk about in a second. And the third issue is the data itself is going to become political. As we say, it's who collected it, how accurate is it, whose agenda does it serve, and it's going to be debased. And I'll give you an example. Uh, this is the politics of crime mapping. A few years ago, this was going to be the greatest thing ever. We were going to take crime data, we were going to look at neighbourhoods, we were going to work out which were high-crime neighbourhoods, where danger was, and so on and so forth. What happened was, first you start with inaccurate data. And here's a, a sort of extreme point, but it makes the point that if the data is inaccurate, you start to get people getting very upset because this applies to their neighbourhood. You remember we said earlier about data taken out of context? So neighbourhoods have the stuff that's taken out of context, was never expected to be open and suddenly there's your neighbourhood in Technicolor as a crap neighbourhood. So the next thing was people started to put poor data back into the system because what they found is that they were worried about insurance going up, they were worried about their neighbourhood, the house prices going down, so people started to not report crimes in their area. Why wouldn't you? Because the feedback loop now comes straight back at you. Um, and then you start to get politically unacceptable data. I don't know if you saw Ghetto Tracker was launched last year. It looked at all these places in the US with very high crime rates and effectively gave people no, the, noise, the, the news on where they were and, and if you were planning a route, routed around them. So there was a huge uproar uh, last quarter of last year about this. It's changed its name um, to something more neutral, but it's still there. That, that service is still demanded. That is a classic politically unacceptable result of, of data. And ultimately, we're starting to see some communities in the US are resisting this because of the whole issue of house prices and insurance and so on. So that really is what's happening. I think there's going to be two other things, which is the real politic of open data. A study uh, done last year for one of the open data sites found that actually the most of the people mainly using it were the people with influence, i.e. it's not necessarily going to be something that allows the openness and the ordinary person to, to exert power, it may well be used by influential people to, inf to, to cause even more influence, just by the sheer nature of who can use data who, and so on and so forth. And the second thing I've seen coming out is you're starting to see a political spin. This one is a very interesting um, uh, paper, which came out um, in the end of 2012. Effectively, it's accusing the open data movement of aiding the government in uh, promoting deregulation. Now, there are some bits to it which ring true. There are some bits to it which are fanciful, but you can see what's happening. It's becoming a political football. You know, is, is open data going to be for Tories? Is it going to be against Tories? And you can see data is no longer going to be neutral. And there's a lot of people who have got vested interest in pushing this. So that's, an, again, a prediction I can make. So next steps to ensure that when we have hackathons that it's what we think we mean by hackathon rather than what black hackathons might look like. 
the first thing I think is there's a downside case which we have to understand. I'd, I'd express it like this, is that the com combination of enthusiasts who see no problems and commercial vested interests who are fully intending to make money out of the problems that it causes may push data to get out before there are adequate protections. That would be exacerbated if the people who experience the problems have little redress initially. As we said before, I think the resistance will start coming via the social media channels. The third point is that there are going to be scandals. And initially, if there's any lesson of scandals before, nothing gets done initially until there's one very large scandal, the scandal that pushes all the others over. And then you get overreaction, you get overregulation, uh, and so on. Um, so I think that's a very possible scenario. Um, so the question is how to stop that scenario. The first, um, I think, is to start working for an upside case. Um, so first is accept there is an, initial, an original sin problem. And it, this has been called various words by various people who've looked at the problem. But effectively start to design for bad guys in the architecture, start to assume they're going to exist. So think about it when we talk about the systems we use, the regulation put in place, the economics uh, that, we, that we put in place in these deals. Second, I think we have to take strong steps to prevent hacking. It, it, you can never stop every hacker hacking everything, but you can put enough, big enough road bumps in, in, to ensure that a, a large proportion of hacking... You know, there's a lot of amateur hackers out there, and to stop that. The third is to understand whose data it is. I think this idea of overriding the data provider rather than going to the data repository is, 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 a, is a political mistake. The fourth is, I'd be as contentious, putting toll booths on the road paid with good intentions. It's a bit like the polluter pays idea, i.e. if somebody grabs open data and creates a service that it hurts people, there must be an easy legal way of taking them to court because that will force them to think about what they're doing beforehand and to worry about the effects of their service. And the fifth, I think, is to start for governance early rather than late because if it comes late, there's an overreaction. I do think there is um, a case for an off-dat or whatever it's called sooner rather than later. Now, this is not for all data. I think we need to apply different rules for different types of data. I think a lot of the open data is what I call tier, what's, what's called tier one in a report by the uh, Research Council last year. There's, there's no real public interest implications. There's no real amount of uh, anonymization that can go away. Uh, we don't have to worry. You start worrying if there's data that has public interest applications, like police data and so on. And then the most important... Most critical data you really, I think, have the strongest um, case to, to look at carefully is data with public interest implications that have personal uh, information in. So that's my 20 minutes run through um, of the issues. So Catherine says uh, we now have discussions. I'd like to end, though, with if you think that the worst case may happen, what might you do? And the first I'd say is be vigilant. Understand that this is probably going to happen. The second is be prepared uh, because. Basically, people with addresses, with bank accounts, with assets are the people that are going to be hammered. Um, and uh, I can't possibly say this, but speaking to my, my colleague, who, who's a crypt, his master's in cryptography, his view is you have to start generating bad data, i.e. to make it harder to find you. Um, a third option is to opt out, like the health data. And if there isn't an option to opt out, demand the choice. Um, and I think that will force better thinking by, by um, the bodies want to use. Fourth, obviously, is, is, is agitate. Um, social media is a very good tool for agitation and obviously I think there is an argument for getting involved in, in pushing for a, a better outcome scenario than my worst scenario so get all, get, get, get involved anyway, that's that any questions? You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute's